Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. Hello, listeners, and welcome to my favorite time of the year, Halloween. By now, you should have noticed leaves falling, a costume should be decided upon, and of course, you should have more than enough candy for the neighborhood ghosts and ghouls. Hopefully, the handling of all those administrative tasks should be behind you, buried in the fog of your past. But if not, maybe you need a little something to get you in the appropriate mood for this season. And I can certainly help you with that. Nothing brings life to the Halloween spirit like a good ghost story. And no one writes or tells a ghost story like my friend Steve Vernon. Longtime listeners of Nighttime will know Steve well as he's a favorite author of mine and has joined us several times in the past to share his unique style of storytelling. And tonight, in this episode, he's going to do it again. Just a few nights back, Steve and I ventured into one of Halifax's many haunted forests for a night of storytelling. I, of course, brought my microphone, and Steve, well, he brought a flashlight and a book full of his stories. The recording I made that night is what we're about to hear. In this episode of Nighttime, I'll take you along with me as Steve Vernon cracks open a dusty manuscript and shares three chilling stories set in haunted Nova Scotia. What story are you going to read? Well, I thought uh, I was going to read something from McNabb's Island, uh, called the Mayor of McNabb's Island. It's coming from the collection The Lunenburg Werewolf. And other stories of the supernatural, I think it's about the third or fourth book I'd released through Nimbus. Huh, good. I know this is, This must be one of the more popular books, because I see that everywhere, The Lunenburg Werewolf. Uh, actually, I find it, it, uh, it goes a bit below the radar, partly because most of my collections all have that, that alliteration, Haunted Harbors, Wicked Woods... I was going to call this one Spooky Shores, and uh, somebody at the publishing house I work with uh, said, well, you know, we've done that alliteration every time we should do something different now. So yeah, and they you... decided they took uh, the title of one of the stories, The Lunenburg Werewolf. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people, when they see this, they say, oh, it's a novel. Yeah, because it yeah. has that look. It does, it yeah. does. But uh-huh. uh, I, do, I do love the cover. They did a wicked cool job on that cover. It's gorgeous. Well, you can uh, you can jump in and tell us about McNabb's Island when you're ready. All right. The mayor, and that's spelled M-A-R-E, the mayor of McNabb's Island. Wedged like fishbone in the throat of Halifax Harbor lies McNabb's Island, location of many strange incidents and coincidences throughout history, and the setting of many local storytellers ghost stories. And one of the island's most prominent features 
is the long and tenuous point that juts out from it into the belly of the harbor like the blade of an open jackknife. Back in the 18th century, that point was known as Dead Man's Beach on account of the many skeletons that were found scattered and strewn upon its rocky shore when the British first settled back in 1749. These skeletons were rumored to be the remains of the French invasion fleet of 1745, four years before, captained by the unlucky Duke Danville, whose story is more properly told in my book, Halifax Haunts. Look at that, that's a commercial happening right before your ears. It is estimated that Duke Danville lost over a thousand men to fever, shipwreck, and storms. Many of the dead were simply and unceremoniously cast into the harbor with a cannonball nodded to their feet. In March 1753, Dead Man's Beach and the salt march that surrounded it were deeded to one Joshua Mauger, a seafaring merchant with a bad reputation for smuggling rum and contraband. Point was known as Mauger's Beach until the British raised the gallows at the end of the beach. These gallows gave birth to a nickname that still hangs on to this point to this very day, Hangman's Beach. Further down McNabb's Island, towards the mouth of the Halifax Harbor, broods the Thrumcap Shoal, a nasty hook of submerged rock that tore the belly out of the Royal Navy frigate the HMS Tribune on November 16, 1797. I really appreciate how people tiptoe past. It's kind <laughs> of them. <laughs> it was from this point that poor Peter McNabb IV stared out one hot August morning in 1853 and watched spellbound as a sea serpent, nearly six meters long with an evil nub of a head writhed and twisted through the white-capped waves. And whether or not the sea monster was to blame, McNabb died screaming in Mount Hope Asylum 20 years later. There are many more stories attached to McNabb's Island, stories of murder and mayhem and things that go bump in the night, but none is more mysterious than the tale of Dermot McGregor and his piebald mare. The summer thunder drummed and rumbled over the length of McNabb's Island. Crackle of heat lightning split the July night sky and Dermot McGregor's head felt like it was going to burst apart from the headache that was coming on. Dermot was a short man with a shorter temper and a shock of red hair that made it look as if his head was constantly alight. The children were crying again. Seemed like they were always crying about something. Six-year-old Elias had been tug-of-warn with three-year-old Myra over their favorite toy stick. Only the stick had snapped. Elias had fallen, and Myra had jammed a willow splinter deep into her thumb. Let me take a needle to that splinter, Dermot's wife Annie said to Myra. If you leave it, you'll weep for seven long years only made Myra cry all the louder. Dermot looked longingly out the kitchen window. 
Sometimes I think I'd like to just get off this lousy little island, he said to Annie, away from everything that is bound to drag me down and under. Annie did her very best to humor his morose complaining while trying to simultaneously juggle a pair of constantly crying children, one very hungry and smelly dog, and a needy and slightly gone-to-seed husband. Are you planning to go to Halifax then, she asked with half a grin. She had heard him sing that tired old tune many a time. Dermot was a dreamer who'd never quite learned to be happy with the fate that life had dealt him. He always felt he was missing out on some better dream. Just a little over the horizon. Be sure to take me with you when you go, because I need to buy me some new blue ribbon. I'm not just talking about Halifax, Dermot grumbled. There's a whole big old world out there waiting for me, just beyond those waves. What are you going to use for money? Annie asked. You're a little short on looks and long on debt, as far as I can see. I have a plan, Dermot said mysteriously. I was afraid you'd say that. Dermot always had some sort of a plan, which didn't necessarily mean that he knew just what he was doing while he was doing it. Tommy Krause says he knows where some treasure is buried at. Annie snorted her disdain. If Tommy Krause told me that fire will burn your fingers, I'd still most likely want a second opinion. Tommy Krause is a very smart man. He just doesn't look at his all. Tommy Krause doesn't know if he was born, hatched, or planted, Annie said. If shoes were clues, that man would walk around barefoot. He's seen it himself, Dermot insisted. Five stones under a cherry tree, halfway up the side of Strawberry Hill. He swears those stones were put there by pirates. Any pirate with half an ounce of brain would spend what treasure he had in a tavern rather than bury it where any idiot could dig it up. It's not what a pirate does, Dermot argued. What would you know about pirates? At this point in the argument, Dermot was not about to be swayed by anything remotely resembling common sense. He had hit upon a plan and he was bound to see it through. It's a treasure map, Dermot said. Tommy Krause traded Billy Bulger nearly full, a nearly full bottle of rum for it. Well, why in blue bla bloody blazes would Billy Bulger trade a perfectly good treasure map for a nearly empty bottle of rum? It was gin, Dermot roared, and I told you the bottle was nearly full. Besides, what good would treasure do to old Billy, what with him being half-blind and near illiterate to boot? Do you listen to yourself talk? I'm not listening, Dermot snapped. Consider me deaf as a knothole post to whatever you have to say to me. Fine stew is that you're brewing. Danny said with a laugh, the blind leading the deaf and the dumb. Dermot shook his head in confusion. How can you call Tommy Krause dumb, he asked. Tommy talks just as fine as paint. Tommy Krauss can talk the ears off of a dead moose, Annie said, and I'm looking straight at the only man dumber. That did it. Dermot stood up, slammed the door, and Annie opened the door and slammed it again after him. Dermot jumped onto his old piebald mare. 
He missed and he fell into the mud. He climbed back up while Annie watched from the window, trying her hardest not to laugh. By now, even young Elias and his sister Myers had come to the window and were trying just as hard, only not nearly as successfully, which didn't help Dermot's temper one little bit. Dermot dug his heels into the mare's mottled rump, clicked his tongue against the edge of his teeth, and galloped on down to the old cliff trail, aiming himself straight towards Hangman's Beach. Where's Daddy going? Elias asked, bouncing on his toes by the windowsill in order to have a better look. Is he going for a ride? Myra asked around a mouthful of splinter-stuck thumb. Your father has hitched up his sadly wounded dignity, and he's taken it for a long, hard gallop, Annie said, and it's time you both were in bed. Half hour later, once the children were both asleep, Annie went on back to the window, peered out into the night, and shook her head. Her man most likely wouldn't be back until morning, when he would come stealing in, most likely with a fistful of freshly picked dandelions, daisies, and buttercups, meekly asking after his breakfast. Dermot wasn't a bad man just bad-tempered and inclined to bouts of unpredictable stupidity. Annie knew very well that he was just trying, in his own simple-minded way, to find a better life for their children. Foolish man, she thought to herself. Didn't he know that life was good as long as it gets, as, as long as you're left alive to live it? Annie lit a tall white candle, and she placed it gently in the window, just in case Dermot found his way home that night. And she sat down in her old willow rocker, tilting it back and letting it slide forward, rocking herself down to an untroubled sleep. The candle flame flickered and danced. The wind blew cool under the window. The old cotton curtains shifted with the hot July breeze, and Annie slept on dreamlessly. Meanwhile, Dermot galloped up Tommy, to Tommy Krause, who was standing at the foot of Strawberry Hill with a lantern in one hand and a pick in the other. Dermot nearly threw himself from the mare and tried his best to make it look as if that was how he originally intended to dismount. Have a care with all that tearing about, Tommy warned him. You go galloping like that, you're apt to make a ghost out of yourself. Tommy crossed himself from habit at the word ghost. Have you got the map? Dermot snapped. No, Tommy said. I left it at home for safekeeping with my old tomcat. Of course I brought the map. Tommy held up the map, nearly shattering the lantern with the blade of the pick. Careful yourself, Dermot scolded. You catch that map alight, we'll all go penniless. No fear of that, my man, Tommy said hastily dropping the pick in the dirt. There'll be pirates' gold and pennies aplenty when this night is done. Pennies. That was really what this whole thing was about. It hurt Dermot deeply to watch Annie eke out a bare minimum existence counting every penny. He didn't like that he couldn't afford to dress her in finery. He didn't like that they had to depend upon the berry harvest and the rabbits he could snare to feed the kids. 
He didn't like that his children couldn't afford to play with anything better than a stick. All that Dermot wanted was a better life for his family. Is that so much to ask? The map says 100 paces north of the oak tree, Tommy read aloud. The oak tree was easy. It was the biggest tree in Hangman's March. Marsh. All right, navigator, Dermot said. So which way is north? Tommy looked about to his left and his right. I think that's the North Star, Tommy said, pointing straight up. Well, isn't it a shame that I forgot to bring my skywalking boots? Is there any moss on the side of the oak? Tommy asked. Moss always grows on the north side. We're in the middle of a marsh, Dermot pointed out. As far as I can see, there's moss all around here. Tommy thought about that. Uphill, he finally decided. Come again? North is up on the map, isn't it? And the North Star is up in the sky, Tommy said. So it stands to reason that if we pace uphill, we're bound to hit north. Just a little too late for thinking so hard about such matters. Dermot stuck his finger straight ahead, pointing uphill. Lead on, navigator, he said. Two men began trudging uphill, counting each pace as they went. One, two, three, four, five. Whatever you do, don't look up, Tommy warned. There's a full moon tonight, and it's fearful bad luck if you stare at the moon through the fork of a tree. Tommy, we're in the middle of a forest, Dermot pointed out. How else are we going to look at the moon if we aren't staring up through branches? Well, all the same, don't go looking, Tommy said. That's when a ghost will sneak up on you while you're staring at the moon. Dermot's old mare blew her breath through her lips as he pulled up the hill. She reeked of hay and horse sweat. Secretly, Dermot was glad he had her along with him. In a way, she kind of comforted him. There's no such thing as ghost, Dermot said. Eleven, twelve... 13, 14, 15, that shows you just what you know, Tommy said. Why, it wouldn't surprise me one little bit if one reached out and grabbed the both of us right now. 20, 21, 22, 23, 24. So how are you going to spend all the gold we find, Tommy asked. Once we find it, Dermot corrected. I'd like to go back home to the old country, Tommy went on, as if Dermot hadn't said a word. I'd like to open up a tavern and keep the door locked all day long and just drink my worries away, Dermot laughed. That sounded a lot like Tommy's kind of thinking. Well, what would you do with your money, Tommy asked. I'd like to give my family a better life. I'd like to see them in a better place with all that a family ever needs. I'd like to buy Annie dresses and little Elias and Mara some proper toys. What's wrong with the toy stick, Tommy asked. That's all you and I ever had to play with. Dermot counted pennies for paces as they hiked up the hill, hungry for that pirate's buried treasure, which was why he tripped over his feet and fell face first halfway up the hill. He reached forward as he fell, and he inadvertently caught hold of Tommy's left heel. He's got me! Tommy howled aloud, thinking he was being attacked by a ghost. He's got me by the heel! Before Dermot could say a word, Tommy up and ran, kicking off his boots and screaming out into the darkness. 
looking for all the world as if he were figuring on run, running barefoot back to the old country. Dermot tried to call him back, but it was too darn late. He shook his head and grinned. Hope he stops running before he hits the water, he said to himself, shaking his head sadly. And he took the map with him. Well, this was a wasted night for sure. The old mare blew her out, breath out through her lips, as if she secretly agreed with Dermot. Come on then, horse, Dermot said. Let's get ourselves on home. Annie'll be waiting to laugh at me in the morning. Dermot turned the horse around. He glanced up through the branches of the trees ahead and saw the full moon looking down at him. The full moon and something else, a whole lot brighter. Sky in front of him was lit up as if the stars themselves had caught on fire. Dermot knew what it was right off. Annie, he whispered, and he leaped up on the old mare's back and kicked his heels hard. The old mare galloped a second time into the darkness. The light in the distance tore up the sky. Dermot leaned in and urged a little more speed from the old nag. This rate, if the mare threw him, he would break his neck for certain. As it was, he might run the horse into a tree and break both their necks. He didn't care. Faster, he whispered. The old mare galloped like she had never galloped before. But Dermot was too late. When he got back to his home, it had burnt to the ground. The candle that Annie had left burning in the window had caught on the cotton curtains, and a fire had raced through the old cottage like a galloping stallion. There was nothing left but a legacy of cinder and ash. Dermot knelt in the ashes of his home. He wept a long old time until something caught his eye. He picked it up. It was little Elias and Mara's toy stick, somehow spared from the flames. Dermot squeezed the stick until white half-moons of frustrated tension stole, shone on the backs of his fingernails. And he climbed grimly up onto the back of his tired, piebald mare and brought the stick down hard and sharp against the old mare's horse haunches. Get up, Dermot cried. He rode down along the old cliff trail. He rode past the foolish buried treasure dreams of Strawberry Hill. He rode headlong down the length of Hangman's Beach. He hit the pounding waves and kept on riding straight out into the deep black waters of the harbor. To this day, people will still tell you about how you'll see a flicker of a candle and a roaring flame in the heart of old of the dark McNabb's Island woods. They'll tell you that it is a ghostly memory of an orphanage that burned down a long time ago. They'll tell you how there was a treasure buried on that island. No one has ever found it. They'll tell you how you'll hear ghostly hoofbeats galloping down the old cliff trail. They will tell you all these tales as if they were three completely different stories. Only a few know the truth behind the matter that all of these tales are linked together like a single unyielding chain anchored in dreams ambition and a fool's better regret that's a great story uh, a lot of your stories i find uh some commonalities is horses seem to appear a lot as do fools for whatever reason do you, <laughs> do you enjoy writing about like just like dumb characters well i think and you have to understand, I've been to call, uh, university, uh, 
three or four times, still haven't got a degree under my belt, but uh, we're all fools in our own way. Yeah. You know, as much education as a pet fella can get, you know, there's always gonna find, there's a way to be foolish about life. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're born stupid, we live stupid, we die still not knowing what we're doing. That first story that I read to you, uh, blowing curtains played a big part in it, so I thought I'd continue that on that with uh, a story from Digby called The Sight of the Stirring Curtains. It's a little shorter read. There are an awful lot of fishing superstitions in Nova Scotia. Local fishermen will tell you that you should never turn your boat against the sun. You ought not to turn it counterclockwise. They also believe that a piece of silver should always be placed beneath the mast of a sailing ship before she's launched, like right underneath it, you know, when they set that mast down into the deck. Uh, a deck hatch should never be turned completely upside down. Black suitcases should never be turned completely outside. You ought not to say pig out loud. Black uh, uh, and whistling will bring a storm, as will throwing a penny overboard. And some even will tell you that the sight of seaweed on the floor or softly blowing curtains will chill a man or maid to their very soul. Curtains for certain. Here's the story that they tell you in the Digby area of the Fundy shoreline about a young girl named Jenny, a fisherman's daughter back in the days of the tall schooners. Jenny was a hard-working girl who made a living cleaning the fish that the men brought to shore. She knew the ways of the water and she could tell the tide and the time with nothing more than a quick glance. It was all it took for her to fall head over heels in love with Big Jim Dobson. She stole one brief look at the young man while he was working on his father's boat, and she knew that she and he were going to be as one. Mind you, Jenny was nothing more than a 16-year-old girl at the time, and Jim was all of 18. But things happened at a different pace back in those days. Je Jenny married Jim that summer and the two of them moved into a small house on the seaward side of the hill, overlooking the harbor. For a time, everything was wonderful. Every morning, Jenny would see Jim smiling at her. Every night, she went to sleep listening to the steady thump of his heartbeat and the soft talking whoosh-a-whoosh of the waves washing against the shoreline. Life was un uncomplicated. Then, two weeks into what looked to be a happily ever after marriage, first bit of trouble set in. You mustn't go to sea today, Jenny told Jim. Why is that, he asked. I saw the curtains moving last night, and there was nary a wind stirring outside. Now, every fisherman's wife in this harbor town knew that if a woman 
saw the curtain stern on a windless evening that it meant there'd be a bad wind blowing the next day, a wind that might blow a loved one away. The side of stirring curtains was what the old people would call a forerunner, a sure and certain sign of death to come. Those bedroom windows are double-pane sheet glass, Jim told her, and I cocked them myself. There is no way in the sea nor sky nor land that a smidgen of breeze could creep into this bedroom. Jimmy, I saw the movie, Jenny said. It was like somebody had shackled a ghost to that curtain rod. Jim only laughed at his young wife's fears. Look at that sky out there, he said to her. The air is so calm that the hay in this meadow is growing stiff from a lack of bending. There's no sign of a storm nor a bit of bad wind in the lee of a calm morning such as this. Yet those curtains moved, she said. It's calm, I tell you. It's calmest before a storm, Jenny warned him. You're a fisherman, Jim. You ought to know that. But there were fish to be caught, money to be made, and a mountain of new bills that weren't going to pay themselves. So Big Jim Dobson hauled on his gumboots and clumped down to the harbor to set sail. And Jenny stayed home to wait. All that day the curtains continued to blow. Jenny sat and watched them. The birds outside sang sweetly. Her friends passed and called for her to join them in the outdoor sunshine. But she preferred to sit there and keep her vigil, staring at those curtains. Morning wore into afternoon, pour itself towards the evening, and Jenny came was still kept on watching. As she watched those curtains blowing, in her mind's eye, she saw the sails on Jim's schooner billowing and snapping in a high Atlantic windstorm. The curtain rods creaked. In her mind's eye, she heard the masts of a sailing ship sway. The main and fore gaffs swung hard. Hauser snapped and timber groaned. Hauser, that's rope. Then all at once the curtains fell to the ground like a crumpled ghost. Jenny reached for the curtain but hesitated, her fingertips not more than an inch away from the fabric, which seemed to pick, pucker and writhe upon the floorboards of her bedroom like a clot of jellyfish. She reached closer. She could smell the sea wind blowing in through the curtain. Closer. She could hear the seagulls crying in the breeze. Closer. She could see the shape of Jim's face outlined in the fallen curtains. She could see him kicking against the curtain current. She could see him trying to escape the cold and hungry Atlantic waves. She could see him opening his mouth wide into one last soul-chilling scream. A seagull screeched just beyond the window. Jenny sank to her knees and touched the bedroom curtain. She gasped as she found them to be sopping wet. She wept a little while, feeling the tears spill down her cheeks, splashing onto the already sodden curtains. And she picked the curtains up folding them carefully over her arms. She was not surprised to see the tangled clumps of fresh kelp curled beneath the fallen cotton curtains. Later that evening, they brought her Jim home to the harbor. There'd been a storm, and a spire had snapped and fallen upon her husband while he was bent and working hard. 
He'd fallen into the sea and drowned. Only grim luck had led them to find, find him when they brought in a net full of fresh-caught fish and Jim's cold-bedded dead body tangled in its weave. Jenny was waiting on the wharf when the boat returned. The curtains, now neatly folded, hung over her arms. At least, she thought to herself, I'll have a shroud to wrap him in. That was fantastic. That, that combines a lot of the typical like Atlantic Canadian ghost stories. You got the, um, uh, the, the woman home while her husband's out at sea, the forerunner. And then I can, the imagery of the, the curtain falling and kind of taking the shape of a man. Mm -hmm. It's fantastic. Well, it's, it's uh, oddly true, though, that there's just as many women fisher people. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to be politically correct here. I can't think of They call them fishers nowadays. But uh, women fish as well as men. Maybe when we but get in the... all the stories, it's always the woman sitting home waiting. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just the, the trope, I think. Yeah. Well, I think with your writing, I don't know if you intentionally do this, but I find when I'm listening to your stories or reading your stories, when I imagine it in my mind, this is like the 1800s. Like, I feel like your writing is set in, you know, 100 years ago. Well, you got to paint the proper picture with the proper paint, and mm -hmm. words are all I got to work with. This is a, a story I'm constantly running into people who are asking about this one story. It's quite famous in Nova Scotia. It's called The Haunting of Esther Cox. Uh, it takes place in Amherst, and some folks refer to it as the story of the, the spook house, they call it. Or the great, I've heard it as the Great Amherst Mystery as exactly, well. Exactly, that's the one. It is called The Haunting of Esther Cox. In the bustling... Cumberland County town of Amherst back in the late 19th century, a tale on terror unfolded, a tale so terrible that it's remembered to this very day. His story has been told and retold in volumes of ghostly folklore and newspaper articles across the continent. It is so well loved and wholly feared that it has been immortalized in the streets of Amherst with a gigantic two-story mural painted by well-known Nova Scotia artist Susan Took and her husband, uh, the late Richard Rudnicki. He's a good fella. Sorry to hear him pass. His story is known as the Great Amherst Mystery and it pertains to the haunting of one Esther Cox. Esther was born in the town of Upper Stewiak. Her mother died three weeks after her birth due to complications from the labor. At birth, Esther weighed a mere five pounds. Soon after she was born, Esther's father, Archibald T. Cox, remarried and moved to Maine with his new family, leaving Esther and her older sister Jane in the care of their grandmother. By 1848, Esther's grandmother had died, and she and Jane were living in a crowded two-story house on Princess Street in Amherst, Nova Scotia. The bills were primarily paid by the girl's uncle, 
Daniel Teed, a foreman in the Amherst Chew Factory. In addition to Uncle Daniel and Esther and Jane, the house also sheltered Daniel's wife, Olive, and their two sons, five-year-old Willie and one-year-old George. Esther was short, rather stout. Her eyes were gray with flecks of blue. Her hair was curly dark brown, and she wore it short to allow for easy maintenance. Esther was quiet and fairly helpful and prone to daydreaming. Her whole demeanor was pleasant. She was quite popular with the local youth. However, at the age of 18, Esther Cox's life became pure screaming hell. Trouble first started one night in early September when Esther awakened Jane in the bed that they shared. There are mice in the bed, Esther said. I can hear them scratching. Jane listened carefully, only to discover that the scratching noises weren't actually coming from the bed itself, but rather from beneath it. It's the box of quilt makings under the bed, Jane said. I bet you anything those darn mice are building a nest in it. The two of them gingerly slid out the old cardboard dress box, crammed full of quilting patches, out from beneath their bed and into the middle of the floor. Open it, Jane said. You first, Esther replied. All at once, the box lid flew open, and quilt patches began to flutter about the room like tiny flying carpets. The box bounced itself repeatedly, as if someone were slamming it upon the floorboards. At the same time, the quilt flew from the bed and draped itself over Jane and Esther's head. Every time they pulled the quilt off, it folded itself back over their heads as if someone were shaking and draping it in midair. At this point, Uncle Daniel rushed into the room. What's wrong, he asked. By this time, the disturbances had completely subsided. All that Uncle Daniel saw was a pair of young girls sitting on the bedroom floor with the bed quilt tented over their heads. Some of us need to work in the morning, he grumbled, going back to his bedroom with a rueful chuckle. He's a good man, and he did his best to see the funny things in life, no matter how tired he was. Only it wasn't so funny later that evening when the sound of Esther's panic-stricken screams woke the entire household. I'm dying, she shrieked. I'm dying. Jane leaped from the bed as the family rushed in. They all stared at Esther in absolute terror. Esther's hair stood straight out as if she had been struck by lightning. Her skin was blotched the color of blood. Her flesh had begun to bloat and swell and could barely and she could barely manage to catch her breath. I'm dying, she repeated. It's a fever, her uncle decided. Only wasn't no fever. Fever couldn't explain all that noise and commotion. Loud raps and bangs echoed through the room as if someone were beating on the walls from the inside with a massive hammer. Quilt began to turn itself over and over in midair as if some invisible hand was trying its hardest to unmake the bed. Family watched in horror until morning when the event culminated in what sounded like a loud clap of thunder right in the bedroom, it left behind a stench of something like sulfur. The odd noises finally subsided. The quilt ceased its antics, and Esther regained her normal state of health.
She caught her breath, and the unwholesome bloating of her limbs and flesh seemed to pass, and her skin resumed its normal pigmentation. For a moment, all was calm. As the days went on, Esther's health seemed to worsen. The nightly visitations continued. The banging and thumping that tormented her grew bolder. Finally, four days later, a doctor was summoned to Esther's room. He might have been called early, earlier, but ready cash was hard to come by in those days, and doctors cost a lot of money. She's clammy and sweating, the doctor said, but she doesn't seem to have much in the way of a fever. Sounded a little impatient. He had listened to the family's story and privately considered it to be nothing more than foolish ranting. Still, he was a doctor and he was honor bound to do his best to help the poor girl. As he continued his examination, the strange banging noises began to echo through the room. It was also a scratching sound that it sounded as if someone were working a very sharp set of nails across the blackboard. Look, Uncle Daniel said, pointing up at a spot on the wall just above Esther's headboard. Words were beginning to emerge on the wall, just as if someone were scratching them out from beneath the plaster. The group watched in cold terror as the message began to emerge. Esther Cox, you are mine to kill. Over the next four months, the conditions grew worse. The hammering noises began to move throughout the household. At one point, it sounded as if a 150-pound man were jumping upon the roof. Another time, Uncle Daniel's wife stared in amazement and terror as a barrel of potatoes was flung around the house's basement. Potatoes rolled and chased her about the cellar. In December of that year, Esther, worn down by her continual nightly ordeals, was struck with a severe case of diphtheria. She was bedridden for two solid weeks, and the family enjoyed two weeks of uninterrupted rest. The diphtheria seemed to ward off the paranormal activity. Following her recovery, Esther journeyed to Sackville, New Brunswick, to stay with a married aunt. No episodes of paranormal activity were reported in the Sackville residence. However, in January, when Esther returned to Amherst, things resumed with a vengeance. Along with the banging and the scratching and the moving furniture, lit matches began to materialize in midair, usually just below ceiling level. As it materialized, they dropped to the floor, still lit. The matter became even more serious when Esther reported hearing voices whispering to her, that the house would burn down to the ground before the month was over. Family had to face facts. Esther had to go. The Whites, a neighbor and couple who needed an extra set of hands around their farm, took Esther in but had to return her after tools began flying around wherever she went. Family had to face facts. Esther had to go. The Whites, a neighboring couple who needed an extra set of hands around their farm, took Esther in, but had to return her after tools began flying around wherever she went. Even the local Baptist church could provide no peace for poor Esther. 
as a mysterious pounding and scratching followed her even into those sacred walls. Esther was losing hope. Something had to be done, and fast. In March 1878, Esther was invited to stay at St. John, New Brunswick, home of Captain James Beck, a man with a keen interest in the paranormal. In addition to Captain Beck, several scientists, a handful of amateur occultists and investigators of unearthly phenomena, and a trio of local clergymen who were invited along on a sort of 19th century ghost-busting operation. I don't know if Bill Murray was there, but... <laughs> the team studied Esther for some time. She would sit on a wooden chair secured to a thick rug, eliminating any possibility of her making the banging sound with the legs of the chair. The rapping and banging continued in spite of the precautionary carpet. A pot of water was placed beside the rug. The water immediately began to boil in spite of the fact that there was no fire anywhere close to the pot. By now, Esther was comfortable conversing with the banging spirits. The spirits, if spirits they were, would answer onlookers' questions. If someone asked, how old am I? The spirits would bang out the proper number. She knew the names and personalities of each of the spirits that haunted her. Above all else, Esther maintained that any vandalism or misdoings were strictly the fault of the spirits. None of it is my doing, she swore. Spirits are doing it all. Shortly after she arrived at Captain Beck's home, Esther met Walter Hubble, an American actor on tour through the Maritimes. Hubble saw opportunity in Esther's sad plight, and he convinced her to let him study her further in her own home. Hubble became quite close with Esther and her family. Uncle Daniel and Aunt Olive were quite taken with the dashing young actor, and he won both the trust and the heart of young Esther Cox. However, the spirits who haunted Esther seemed less fond of Hubble. In fact, whenever Hubble entered Esther's bedroom, furniture would begin to shift wildly, and objects he was holding would be jerked from his hand. Once, a large butcher knife flew straight at him, barely missing his throat. In June 1879, Hubble convinced Esther to accompany him on a theatrical tour. He won Uncle Daniel and Anna Olive over with his talk of how much money they were going to make for Esther. Hubble booked Esther in at theaters all over the Maritimes so the public could come and witness the paranormal phenomena with their own eyes. However, the first performance in Picto was an absolute total bust. Esther's spirits suffered from stage fright. She sat there on her chair, but nothing happened. In the end, people began throwing objects at the stage. They booed loudly and shouted, Fake! Fake! The riot broke out. The theater was nearly destroyed. Esther's all-too-short theatrical career came to a crashing halt then and there. After that, Hubble and Esther had a fallen out. Hubble went on to write and publish a short dissertation entitled The Great Amherst Mystery, 
a book that was quite successful and made him an awful lot of money. Surprisingly enough, Esther didn't see any of the resulting profits. After Hubble's abrupt departure, Esther managed to find sanctuary in the home of a local farmer named Arthur Davis, a man who was certain that he could learn to put up with the bang and the moan and the occasional moving piece of furniture. However, Davis could not put up with having his barn burnt down, which is exactly what happened a short time after Esther moved in. Arthur Davis was not inclined to write the barn burning off as a work of spirits. Instead, he charged Esther with arson. Esther was tried and convicted and sentenced to four months in jail. However, the townsfolk felt sorry for Esther's situation and convinced local authorities to release her after she had served only a single month of jail time. No disturbances were reported while she was serving her jail sentence. After her release from jail, Esther was taken in by yet another household, the Van Ambergs. There she lived in mostly untroubled peace. She found her strength through continued prayer and read the Holy Bible every day. She was still plagued by the occasional spirit. Pieces of furniture sometimes slid and moved in her bedding would periodically fly off her bed, but none of the events were as frequent or as powerful as before. Things had begun to look up for the girl. In time, Esther fell in love. She married Mr. Adams of Springdale, Nova Scotia. She outlived Adams and was then married a second time to a Mr. Shanahan of Brockton, Massachusetts. For whatever reason, the mysterious events seemed to settle as she grew into her life. There were still occasional outbursts of paranormal activity, but nothing to the extent of her years in Amherst. Esther Cox Shanahan died peacefully in 1912 at the age of 52. The house on Princess Street still stands to this very day. That's a, a great telling of a classic story. Thank you. Uh, do, do you find it like a lot of your your writing is you you choose stories that I've never heard of and many people haven't heard of, but that one in particular has to be one of Nova Scotia's most well known hauntings. Is it a challenge to take like a known story and turn it into a Steve Vernon story? Well, uh, I had avoided telling that story for a while, just because. It has been told and told and told. It's been in newspapers, been in books, you know. Mm. Uh, I, I like to find the, the weirder ones, the harder ones, uh, to you know, the, the ones that not everybody knows. Mm. But, darn it, every time I'd go to a book sign and somebody would come up and say, have you ever read, written anything about the Amherst mystery? <laughs> so I, I yielded pressure. <laughs> I did the same thing with Oak Island. I've got a, a story in here about ghosts on Oak Island. Okay. Now, I don't particularly, I do talk about the treasure, mm -hmm. but uh, more I tried to, to find the uh, bits of stories that weren't common knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think for, for what you do, if there's you know less known about the story, it gives you more room to to like explore kind of the that world where with say with Esther Cox's story 
the story's there and you're recounting it. Mm-hmm. But if there's just a little detail and nothing more, you can, like you talked about earlier, you can paint the whole thing whatever color you want it to be. Well, I'm 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 a storyteller more than uh, a historian. You know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I try to to make things as accurate as possible, but uh, I'm just as as much concerned with keeping it entertaining. Mm-hmm. I want this to be something that people like to read or, or listen to. So with the talk on what you like to do in your writing, what's what's new with you? Do you got anything coming out? I think every time we, we do one of these, you have a book on the horizon. Is that the case now? Well, I, I do have one in the, the near, uh, not the near future, but uh, the fall of 2022. Okay. Probably around this time next year, October next year I'd say I've got a it's tentatively called more maritime murder oh, okay. a, a follow up to my maritime murder collection with uh, I think a couple dozen uh, murder stories from uh, the history in the maritimes okay fantastic and now I, I like to ask people about how COVID and the pandemic and the change in the world has affected their lives I don't think I've had a chance to talk to a writer about what has changed but what i will say is i hear from a lot of people who are have used kind of the new downtime they've had to get into writing mm-hmm. how's it affected you what's what, what have you been doing the last year and a half well uh for uh, at least the last year or so i was stuck a bit i was the closest to uh being in an actual writer's block and i always took pride you know write, writing was something i would do any time, you know, no matter what was going on in my life, you know. But uh, now these, since uh, since the end of August, I have been writing constantly uh, a series of short stories that I've been uh, marketing. I'm just trying to get back into the swing of things, mm-hmm. you know. These stories, are they being are they publishing them or sharing them online or what's happening with them? Well, right now I'm just uh, mostly just sending them out to uh, different magazines and different uh, uh, sold a couple to a p- couple of podcasts uh, mm-hmm. that uh, buy fiction okay. uh, yeah just uh, I, I'm trying to I think they call it getting back on the horse getting back on the horse yeah it's uh, it, it's just that feedback you know if, if you get a check in the mail you know or, or more often than not, it just shows up in my PayPal. Yeah, it it just gives you that little feedback that says, "Okay, I can do this." You know. Yeah. Yeah. And it's that's just... driving you towards a fall 2022 release, hopefully. Well, that that book's written, oh. but uh, Nimbus is gonna, you know, they're gonna edit it and then copy edit it, and I'll have to. It's it, it'll it's in their hands right now. I want to thank you for joining Steve Vernon and I for our walk through haunted Nova Scotia. If you want more stories like this, I couldn't recommend Steve's books anymore. Tonight's stories were from a prior book of his called The Lunenburg Werewolf. But in all honesty, every Steve Vernon book is great. Also, if you're in the Halifax area, on November 5th to 7th, Steve will be set up at the Nimbus table at the popular Christmas at the Forum. If you see him there, Check out his books and tell him I said hi. And with that, I'll wrap up this episode of Nighttime, but before we part, I have some thanks. 
First, a big thanks to Steve Vernon for sharing an evening with me and with the listeners of Nighttime. A big shout out to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. It's a piece called Noir Tokyo. And lastly, a massive thank you to everyone who listens to Nighttime, as without your interest and your support, this show would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, please listen on the premium feed. Not only does it make the show possible, it'll give you a bit more of each topic than you'll find here on the free feed, as I'm adding exclusive content regularly, as well as maintaining an archive of past episodes no longer available on the free feed, on our premium feed. So, for about the price of a cup of coffee, help keep the show alive at patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And on the topic of the premium feed, let me thank the newest subscribers. Owen, Tracy PR, and Garrett, Jeff, S. Gilroy, and Margie. Thank you for going premium. For anyone else out there who'd like to support the show but can't subscribe to the premium feed, you can give me a big hand by simply sharing episodes on social media and letting like-minded friends know what we're doing here. If you want to get in touch with me, you can find me at nighttimepodcast.com slash contact or on social media. I use Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And of course, I'm often live on the Nighttime YouTube channel. So until next time, take care of each other. Hug your loved ones tight. And let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte.